Welcome to the Federalist Society's Practice Group Podcast. The following podcast, hosted by the Federalist Society's Criminal Law and Procedure Practice Group, was recorded on Monday, June 28, 2018, during a live teleform conference call held exclusively for Federalist Society members. Welcome to the Federalist Society's Teleform Conference Call. This afternoon, we'll discuss the recent Supreme Court decision in Carpenter v. United States. My name is Laura Flint, and I'm the Deputy Director of Practice Groups here at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the expert on today's call. Today, we are happy to have with us Dean A. Mazzoni, Deputy Chief of the Criminal Bureau of the Massachusetts Attorney General's Office. After hearing from our speakers, we'll go to audience question and answer. Thank you for speaking with us, Dean. The floor is yours. Um, well, my name is Dean Mazzoni. I'm the Deputy Chief of the uh, Attorney General's Office of the Massachusetts Attorney General's Office, um, Deputy Chief of the Criminal Bureau. Um, and what I say here is not uh, anything I say is just my own personal opinion and not the uh, opinion of uh, the Attorney General uh, of Massachusetts. But it's a pleasure to be here. It's a, I'm honored to be to be asked to talk about this for the for the Federal Society. And um, I don't know, with that, away we go. Carpenter versus the United States. Um, which was decided by the United States Supreme Court um, this past Friday. I'll just give a little background on the case, uh, the legal issues, just for a few minutes, um, and then open it up to questions. Uh, the case was uh, something that has, has percolated in the, in the lower courts, in the district courts, in the state courts, in the federal courts of appeals um, for, for a long time, and everyone was waiting for a resolution from the U.S. Supreme Court. And we sort of got it, although, uh, as some people say, and as you may may believe after I'm done with my presentation, um, it may uh, raise more questions uh, than it answers. Uh, the case, the question uh, in the case that, and the question that the case answered uh, is whether or not um, the government conducts a search in the constitutional sense when it accesses uh, cell site location information uh, that's in the possession of uh, either the carrier, that is the, the cell phone company, um, all the time, every time, whenever you activate your phone, whenever you talk to someone, whenever you use your phone, uh, signals, as people may or may not know, uh, bounce off a, a cell site, uh, which are in various locations where, wherever you walk, which makes it, uh, or wherever you are, wherever you are, excuse me, which makes it um, not only does it make it make you able to make the call, connect with the tower, and make the call to whoever you're calling. Um, but that information is collected and maintained uh, by uh, various carriers. Your phone company keeps a record of all that. Now, every phone company does things differently. Um, they, they maintain things differently. They maintain things for uh, various lengths of time. Uh, but the question in this case was whether when the government, via a subpoena, asks that carrier for the records uh, of your personal cell site location information, whether that's a Fourth Amendment search. Uh, the is focused on a series of, um, of robberies of radio shacks, kind of mundane um, criminal, criminal facts, um, but it, it, it gives rise to profound questions of um, Fourth Amendment law. Uh, different, different, different radio shacks in, in Michigan and Ohio were robbed um, through cell site location information subpoenaed by the, by the United States government, they, people were able to locate um, Carpenter and, and say for sure that he was in the locations of all those robberies. They had uh, various accomplices also testified. So 
with the cell site location information combined with uh, testimony from accomplices and, and other tools of surveillance, standard tools, uh, they were able to paint, a, the government was able to paint a pretty compelling picture that uh, Carpenter was the leader of this, this ring. That is, you can't say he wasn't there because his phone was there at all uh, and all the uh, most important points uh, when it came to these series of robberies. Uh, so uh, his argument was, hey, uh, the government got all this information through my cell phone carrier. Um, they got it via a subpoena. The showing is a, from, for, for a subpoena is simple. It, all, they, all the government has to show is that there's reasonable grounds to believe uh, that the records sought are relevant and material to an ongoing criminal investigation. That's pursuant to the United States um, Title Section 2703D. Uh, which you know, federal magistrate judge issues the orders and directing the wireless carriers, in this case Metro PCS and Sprint, to disclose the cell site sector information, uh, which it did. But uh, what Carpenter said was, no, 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 that standard is too no, too low. It was a search of my personal information for which I had an expectation of privacy, meaning my locations, where I was on those particular days, I have an expectation of privacy in that. That's my private information. Even though the cell phone carrier maintains it, and, and they have to maintain it for them to do their job and for me to, to utilize their services, no, no, no. You need probable cause and a warrant, which is a much higher showing that the government has to show uh, before they can obtain those records. Now, this uh, I can tell from my I can tell you from my experience and almost 20 years of doing criminal prosecutions and doing uh, drug cases, homicides, that uh, this cell phone cell site location information uh, is can be a huge uh, huge advantage and a great tool in investigating crimes and uh, figuring out who did what when. Um, and we what 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 his argument. Uh, did was run headlong into another argument, which is that, no, 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 the fact that these in, this information was in the hands of a third party, that is the cell phone carrier, um, means that you have no expectation of privacy uh, in those documents, in the CSLI information. Uh, there are cases uh, from the Supreme Court that well established that government, the government's relied on for decades uh, that say that if you provide what you may or may not consider to be personal information to a third party, a bank, a phone company, that you've surrendered uh, your expectation of privacy, and there is no, and if that company decides to turn over that information to the to the government, be it be it voluntarily, be it via a subpoena, or anything, uh, you have no recourse against the government in a criminal case. So the two case, so two of the cases um, that were that. The government's always relied on. Uh, has to do, one has to do with bank records, uh, which is Miller, and the other has to do with uh, phone company records. Bank records meaning just records of transactions that the bank maintains, and uh, the phone company records meaning just records of calls you made, not the content of calls, of course, but just the idea that your number called another number on a certain date for a certain length of time, uh, and that there's always been no expectation of privacy. Um, as the law is recognized, no, no expectation of privacy in those in those items. Um, so that being the case, the government relied on that uh, by saying, no, 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 we don't have to require we don't require probable cause. As a constitutional matter, we don't require you know, if the if the carrier voluntarily wants to turn over this information, they're absolutely free to. It's always been the law, and that still is the law. 
So uh, the Supreme Court uh, decided uh, to, to take that case, and in a five to two decision, a five to four, five to two, five to four decision, uh, the Supreme Court uh, disagreed uh, famously. Uh, it's only been been less than a week, but I can fairly say that they've done it famously. Uh, the lineup was Chief Justice Roberts, along with Justices Breyer, Kagan, Sotomayor, and. Um, whoever the fifth justice would be, um, on the side of uh, the defendant by saying, no, 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 cell site location, excuse me, Ginsburg, uh, um, the cell site location information, uh, there is an expectation of privacy in that. It's, it's a, what, the gov- what you have to look at is not so much the fact that you've, a person turned over records uh, to a third party, like bank records and phone company uh, or, or who, who I'm calling on a particular day, but more importantly, just exactly what kind of information you're turning over. So this case was, was closely watched by, by jurists and litigants because they wanted to know, is the third-party doctrine going to go down? Uh, Justice Gorsuch, in, one of, in his dissent, said uh, the third-party doctrine may still exist, but it's on life support. Uh, the Chief Justice didn't agree with that and said, no, no, no. Um, Miller and Smith are still good law. That is, there's no expectation of privacy in the bank records with a bank. There's no expectation of privacy when it comes to you know, basic phone records that you provide, you know, to the company when you make a call. Um, that is, those are those are documents generated by the company uh, for their own reasons, and they they don't really reveal anything about. Uh, a person, uh, a bank, a check is a negotiable instrument um, that's used commercially all the time. The phone numbers are just a phone call, you know, just certain numbers. They say who you called, but they don't say, say anything more about the call. And Justice, uh, the Chief Justice, uh, went back to a case, uh, U.S. v. Jones, which is the GPS case, which was decided a few years ago, um, where the court held that to put a, a device on a, on a car that tracks the car, the GPS device, uh, unknown to the driver, uh, is in fact a search because even though the court had always said that, you know, you can be followed by the police and there's no expectation of privacy there and what you do on the roadways, the fact that your physical location can be tracked because technology has advanced in such a way that you can be tracked continuously uh, makes the type of information now that the government's looking at um, actually a, a search. So it's the quality of the information held by the third party uh, that um, makes all the difference. Professor Oren Kerr talks about his equilibrium adjustment theory, um, if I have it right, which is it's not so much categorical as qualitative. Uh, and the Chief Justice Roberts said cell site location information is the same as GPS, or it's going to be the same as GPS as the technology advances. That is, you're going to be able to learn things about people, intimate details about their lives, where they go, how often they go places, uh, through cell site location information, just like you can with the GPS, uh, so that though the third-party doctrine survives, it doesn't survive when the government is looking at the cell site location information and a search warrant uh, is now required. Uh, There were vigorous dissents. Every one of the dissenters wrote their own opinion. The opinion is over 120 pages. Kennedy wrote the the first dissent, followed by Clarence Thomas. Alito wrote a very comprehensive dissent, and then Gorsuch 
basically just <laughs> raised a lot of questions, uh, as I said earlier, that this case may you know raise more questions than it answered. Um, and that was the lineup again. Uh, the majority opinion was Chief Justice Roberts with Judge Sotomayor, Breyer, Kagan, and Ginsburg uh, all found for the defendant and said, no, no, in a situation like this where the government's seeking cell site location information from uh, a third party, uh, a warrant is required. So going forward, um, uh, lawyers, I would guess, especially the government, would say this is you know, confined to cell site location information. Um, information. That is, no other type of uh, person, no, no other type of personal information or what, a, or what a person would consider their personal information is covered. It's only CSLI, just like GPS is GPS. They're sui generis, and for that, a, a subpoena isn't enough anymore. We'll, we'll, have to, we'll have to get a warrant. So, you know, in Massachusetts, where I work, we've been living with this rule for, for several years. Our own state court made the rule that we had to get a warrant uh, for CSLI few years ago, so it's not, a, it's not alien to us, but uh, there are uh, tons of jurisdictions across the country now where what would have been a, a subpoena would have been, including the U.S. government, where a subpoena would have been sufficient, although now I think they do get warrants anyway, um, in anticipation of a case like this coming down, where a subpoena would have been sufficient, it's not sufficient anymore uh, as a matter of constitutional law for CSLI. And again, that's something that uh, prosecutors and investigators rely on uh, enormously. Uh, and, and to the extent that now you can't just, you have to have a higher standard to be able to, to ask that. That is, you have to have more information in, in, in your head or the, in the prosecutor's head to provide to a judge uh, than you would have to when you just, had, when you just needed a reasonable belief that, that the evidence would be relevant. You have to show probable cause to believe that you're going to find evidence of a crime. Um, and get a warrant for it. So uh, that's basically um, 13 minutes of, of background. Again, there's a lot to read. I, I, I think I, I gave an accurate summation of what the majority opinion says, and you know, I didn't go so much into the into the dissents right now, although they were they make for great reading. And the back and forth uh, is is between the majority opinion and the dissents is, is really. Um, really something to behold and very comprehensive and uh, almost 120 pages, it is uh, fun reading. So in a lot of them, they go into his, the history of the, or the dissents do, uh, go into the history of uh, probable cause, what probable cause means, what a search is, um, when, when the, some of the dissenters think that the idea of just a reasonable expectation of privacy, which uh, the court, uh, the Supreme Court laid out, you know, decades ago, was kind of a wrong turn in this jurisprudence and searches should just be property-based. And that had a lot to do with the CSLI issue as well, because just like the bank records, the argument was, well, CS CSLI is the property of the carriers. They create it. You know, I use my phone, my cell phone to call my friend. I don't create a document. This is all documents created by the third party and it's their, and it's their property and they're the ones who are subpoenaed. And to say I have a Fourth Amendment interest in, in that as the caller is revolutionary and it's going to upset a lot of things and it certainly is going to change the way conceptually a lot of these cases are argued. So um, that's the end of my background, I, I think. Um, it was somewhat long-winded, but I hope accurate and I hope helpful. Let's go to our first audience question. 
Hi. In Jones, I believe all the justices uh, agreed the question was the reasoning. Should it be more of a property interest of trespass or should it be the conventional reasonable expectation of privacy? Uh, and there seemed to be some question as to how much Justice Scalia uh, favored that caste test as opposed to more of a property-based analysis. In this case, was it simply that the only way to find for the defendant was through the reasonable expectation of privacy and the property interest went the other way? Or was there also some kind of debate over which is the right um, test or framework for, for evaluating privacy considerations? Sure. Go Red Sox. Sure, go Red Sox. I hope I get this right, and I think I get this right. Um, the, in fact, why don't I just see if I can find uh, the quote from John Roberts where he discusses the idea that certainly the uh, I have it here he writes um, in footnote in footnote one on page five he says uh, Justice Kennedy believes that there is uh, such a rubric meaning an all-purpose rubric for deciding cases like this the property-based concepts that cats purported to move beyond but while property rights are often informative, our cases by no means suggest that such an interest is fundamental or dispositive in determining which expectations of privacy are legitimate. Justice Thomas and to a large extent Justice Gorsuch would have us abandon cats and return to an exclusively property-based approach. So I think, um, I think that kind of focuses on, on where the question was, which is that uh, the majority opinion says, look, um, cats is alive and well, We've, we've never really turned away from it. And I think further on in the footnote, he says, no one's asked us to reconsider cast, which is interesting. Um, and to that extent, it's still the law. We'll look at, pro we'll look at the property uh, basis of it, but we also have to look from precedent at uh, reasonable expectation of privacy. And that just prompts, you know, from Clarence Thomas to, to Gorsuch to talk about, you know, as I said earlier, it's got kind of a wrong turn. We should keep it with a property-based approach. That would make this case very easy. Um, and, but the problem is we have this kind of amorphous, subjective, you know, avenue for judges to get into policy as to what a reasonable expectation of privacy is. You know, is it, is it a reasonable – what do you look at? Judge Gorsuch has an excellent dissent where he talks about what do you look at to, to find out what's reasonable or, or not, and they really kind of tear apart um, cats. But I think that in that footnote, Roberts explains, look, no one's asked us to, to, to overrule it or question it. Um, so we'll look at property – but we have to look at reasonable expectation of privacy. I think that answers your question, and it was a huge thread um, that ran through the whole opinion. And it really, you know, in a way, you know, you don't know what Roberts is actually thinking, but it it it, it seems like that whole concept could be in play uh, down the road, depending on how um, Carpenter's progeny turns out as it percolates in circuit courts. So, did that answer the question somewhat? Yes, thank you. Okay, you're welcome. While we need for, wait for another audience question, I'll ask one of my own. Were you surprised with how the justices broke down on this decision? Somewhat. It's interesting because uh, Riley versus the United States, which came out a few years earlier, which is also now very famous when it comes to Fourth Amendment law, which said that um, the government definitely needs a warrant to search through uh, someone's cell phone. It's not just that one of their personal effects like a wallet that upon arrest you know, the, the police can look through because the technology had advanced so much that, you know, cell phones are different. 
Um, and that was a unanimous opinion, which I thought kind of surprised me at that time. Having said, and having said that, Chief Justice Roberts kind of latches on to the whole, you know, technological advances and where technology advances so much, and he makes a big deal out of this in, in the majority opinion, that it, that it changes the nature of, of, of what, you're, what you're looking at, what the government wants, and it, makes, and it creates an expectation or a reasonable expectation of privacy because the technology has advanced so far. Um, have, having said that, I thought uh, that, you know, that, that they would be, that they, I was surprised by the level of dissent and how strong the dissents were and how much they questioned reasonable expectation of privacy. Um, Kennedy especially, I was surprised by his dissent. It was, it was very strong. I, I thought I saw, I could detect more of a kind of a, a libertarian streak running through the whole court in terms of, you know, technology and privacy and, and phones and, and, and digital, digital, digital things. But I think they, if you think it through, and the dissents do this, and, and it's a lot to read, but I urge people to read it because it's fun reading. If you think it through, there's a lot of conceptual problems with just saying, well, you know, the, the, the technology has advanced so much, there has to be a pri- we have to recognize these privacy interests because that can kind of throw a whole lot of other uh, doctrines and things out of whack. So I, I was a little surprised that it was as, as close as it was, and, but I read the transcript of the oral argument. I'm not necessarily surprised that Roberts landed where he did. I'm not surprised by the other people who were in the majority, um, but I was surprised at the, how, how vigorous and strong all the dissents were. Um, so, I was th- so that's that's the answer. I thought it would be actually uh, not as close as it was. Um, do you expect more cases to be brought to the court with exception to the third-party doctrine? Are there any in particular in the pipeline you'd like to highlight? Um, not any in particular that I that I know of or I'm aware of, because I do think a lot of people will look, in, look into this case, although obviously there are some trial courts somewhere um, where people are making objections and raising objections to these kind of things, but I'm, I'm not sure how, how far along those things have got or how, how far along those things have gotten. But um, Justice Alito raises uh, in his dissent, you know, he says, you know, and I'll quote him, you know, the the broad principles that the court seems to embrace here will be applied across the board. All all subpoenas and all other orders compelling the production of documents will require a demonstration of probable cause, and individuals will be able to claim a protected Fourth Amendment interest in any sensitive personal information about them that is collected and owned by third parties. So I think that's going to be a lot of the ground uh, that's going to be fought on based on this, you know, because you know the majority opinion is like CSL, CSLI is, you know, is, is, is a different type of, of evidence and it's sensitive and it's personal. And what is sensitive and personal, the court doesn't say. Uh, and I think that's what, what where we're going to go. It's going to be people are going to be subpoenaing things that are in the hands of third parties, and they'll say, no, no, we deserve carpenter protection for that. This is more personal than the than the phone records. This is more personal than the bank records. This is more like CSLI. So I w- I would expect I have no doubt uh, that people are going to be challenging um, people are going to be challenging evidence seized from third parties uh, on just those grounds. Uh, going forward, I certainly would. I think you'd have a hard time. Judges, courts will have a hard time grappling with, you know, what makes CSLI uh, different from whatever the um, sensitive information, or arguably sensitive information, is in the case before it. Not seeing any questions from the audience. Do you have any final remarks? Uh, do I know? Except uh, I would. I would expect this isn't the end of the story uh, when it comes to 
third-party records, and um, again, it's a long opinion, but for anyone who's interested and is on the call, it's well worth investing the time uh, to read for the intellectual stimulation, if nothing else. So, On behalf of the Federalist Society, I want to thank our expert for the benefit of his valuable time and expertise today. We welcome listener feedback by email at info at Thank you all for joining us. We are Thank adjourned. you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this practice group podcast. For materials related to this podcast and other Federalist Society multimedia, please visit the Federalist Society's website at fedsoc.org slash multimedia.